Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. King David and King Solomon led very merry lives with very many lady friends and very many wives. But when old age crept over them with many, many qualms, King Solomon wrote the Proverbs and King David wrote the Psalms. That takes me back to <laughs> That is my fabulous. Past. I have never heard that. Oh, well, that was my way of introducing the sort of perception we have of biblical characters like King David and King Solomon. And David has become a byword in our culture for overcoming dauntless odds. Who has not heard of David and Goliath? But who was the real King David? This notion is addressed in The Secret Chord by Geraldine Brooks. So, Geraldine, welcome back to 3CR. Oh, it's good to be here with another David. Thank you very much. (laughs) Probably not as capable of throwing stones as some others. (laughs) What drew you to the story of David? Uh, It was my son when he was eight years old. He made the rather unusual decision for a little boy that the musical instrument that he would consent to consider learning was the classical harp and that was a bit of a surprise to me but you know we found him a harp he could rent and we found him a teacher and when I would take him to her place for lessons she had a gorgeous concert instrument that she let him play and I I would see him he was very small then and I'd see him dwarfed by this gorgeous golden harp And it put me in mind of just those kind of little fragments of cliché that you just mentioned, David as the boy harpist playing for King Saul, who was mentally ill, so he was kind of the first music therapist in history. And then all the other little things that we know about him, his adultery with Bathsheba and his overcoming Goliath. But I thought, I don't really know the whole story of this guy, and so I started reading it. And I was blown away by how complete it is. What a full picture of a man to whom everything happens. And we meet him as a child, and he's kind of the nobody in his family. All his glamorous older brothers are already movers and shakers. He's the neglected youngest. And then he has this extraordinary rise to hero status and becomes a member of the royal family through marriage with King Saul's daughter. And then reversal, he's on the run, he's an outlaw, he's a traitor. And that's the way it goes for him all through his life, these rises and reversals and every human emotion that you can imagine, everything bad and everything good befalls him. Well, we'll get more on to David shortly, but then you've chosen to tell this story through the eyes of Nathan the prophet, someone who's only mentioned twice in the Bible, uh, so somewhere or other there might be hidden scrolls yet to be discovered of, of Nathan. Yeah, there's this really tantalizing reference um, to the missing book of Nathan that is supposed to tell David's life from first to last, it says. And obviously we don't have that book. But Nathan actually is a character in David's story, a very interesting one. He's a courtier, he's a powerful guy who shapes the destiny of uh, the succession, the royal succession, but he's also the only one who's brave enough to confront David and 
castigate him for his abuses of power. But it also allows you the opportunity, because Nathan goes out and interviews the characters associated with David's life. He goes, uh, he's charged with telling this story of the king from first to last. So the secret court is my imagination of this missing book by this intriguing figure and what would a book like that say if we had it and how would a man like that who's not afraid to tell the truth to the king's face, uh, how would he go about researching the life and he goes and talks to people who knew David before he did and he, he goes about it much as a good newspaper reporter does. He goes and finds the eyewitnesses. Well, David's brother, David's first wife among them, and these aren't necessarily favourable pictures of David. Indeed not, yes. David was not loved by his brothers. First of all, they they despised him, uh, and then later they were envious of him. So it wasn't a warm uh, brotherly relationship. And then his first wife, Michal, loved him, but that love is turned to a most corrosive and scalding hatred in the course of their marriage. But this then leads into a very earthy perspective of David, the way you tell the story, the relationships. It's very real, whereas often from the religious point of view, it's elevated into the spiritual and it loses that sense of earthy restraint or the the conflict or the human frailty. That... Yeah, that was what I really wanted to do was to strip away the mystique and the glamour and bring it back to the Second Iron Age uh, and say, well, what did they mean by a king? What did they mean by a battle? Because we tend to see it all, I think, in very medieval terms uh, because of the illustrations in um, Sunday school textbooks or the beautiful works of art from the Renaissance portraying David. But what was the Second Iron Age in Israel really like? So that was the context that I was going for. So what we get after David has slain Goliath and uh, the foe is routed, uh, you get uh, this little extract. Well, you know what it's like when you take your first man, you're ready for sex, or maybe you don't know. He looked at me with a mixture of distaste and contempt. Well, I can tell you this, a normal boy will put it anywhere after the first kill, girl, hag, mule, and if the prince wants to suck your cock, he turned his head aside and spat into the dust. Very earthy. You might want to just say that that's uh, his, his, you know, pretty raunchy older brother speaking to Nathan just to foreground that quote so that... Fine, we'll yeah. foreground it. But there's <laughs> yeah. also um, the notion of violence that comes oh, out. God. So, oh, I'm mm. getting into... <laughs> <laughs> the violence is, yeah, very is, epic. It is very epic. For example, uh, David is uh, routing another group. I mean, it's, it's almost like tribal it warfare. was tribal. That's exactly what it was. The Israelites, as we came to know them, were at that time a, a scattered group of uh, fiercely loyal tribes, one to the other, but they didn't really cohere into a nation until David essentially forced them to. So there were tribal skirmishes, and it was they were weak, and the 
their, their biggest enemy were the Philistines, who were city dwellers who lived in cities on the coast. So they had access to trade and access to iron weapons, which was a huge deal. The technological advantage of that was vast. So they would come and basically it was, it was sheep rustling. They, were, they would come up from the coast and harass the Hebrew tribal settlements, the shepherds and and the their grain crops. And so it wasn't big, glamorous, you know, Ben-Hur type warfare we're talking about here. It was messy tribal skirmishing. And they'd often face off each other. And, hand to hand, very, very primitive combat. So primitive, in fact, that David turned for a moment, his expression perplexed, but then he moved like a lynx and in two sword thrusts, dispatched the woman and her child. He turned back to me and lifted his shoulders. It was necessary. We can't leave any alive. You know that. And then he turned away, moving off in search of his next kill. This isn't a likeable David. You know, this is a guy who is an embodiment of human duality. He is at times the very worst of us. He is brutal. He is uh, corrupt in his abuse of power. He is a murderer, and yet he is also the author of some of the most glorious poetry we have that is still bringing joy and consolation to people after 3,000 years, and what author wouldn't want to be in print 3,000 years later? He is a creator of music that we can only now imagine, but the Bible is full of references to the glorious music that he not only um, played himself, but he composed for others and filled the city with music. He's capable of in- enormous love, in fact, blind love for his children. So, you know, that's what I like about him is you can't put him in a box. And this blind love, as you say, extends into other areas. Um, we have his encounter with uh, Jonathan or Jonathan. The cry died in my throat. The tall stranger had no dagger. As he drew David's head toward him, he leaned forward and the dark fall of his hair did not conceal the truth of this encounter. They kissed. There was violence in it and power, like lightning reaching from sky to earth. The relationship between David and Jonathan. Yes, well, so we have to look at what's in the text with our own uh, modern eyes, I think. And to me, there's only one way to interpret this great love that is described between them. This is perhaps the most explicit description of the love of one person for another in the entire Bible. It says their souls were knit together. And Jonathan loves David so much that he gives him everything. He gives him even the right to become king. Jonathan's the heir to the throne. He says, no, you'll be king and I'll be second to you. And when Jonathan is killed, what David writes in the psalm called the Song of the Bow is perhaps the most passionate eulogy. It says, my brother Jonathan, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than the love of any woman. And this is at a point in his life when David's loved a lot of women. So I think that there's no way through modern eyes to interpret this as anything other than a full relationship. This leads then to an interesting question about interpretation from a number of points of view. I'll uh, give you a bit of background. My father's a clergyman. 
So I, I rang Dad, he's 92, and said, what's the sort of conventional received wisdom about David and Jonathan? Oh, a, a rich and rewarding relationship, said my dad. Uh, scripture itself does not lean or even allow. So there's that conventional sense that uh, the layers of interpretation that we've applied, you're applying, as you say, with modern eyes. I was just wondering, has this brought you perhaps into conflict with those that want a more conventional interpretation? Yeah, yeah. some people are extremely offended. <laughs> uh, and that's great, you know. We, I, I'm not one of these people who say nothing should ever offend anyone. I think the price of living in a free speech society is we're all going to get offended. I get offended every day by Donald Trump. It, you can set your clock by it. Um, but I, again, there's a long tradition, I mean, especially in the Jewish faith, of looking at Scripture, uh, providing an interpretation, and then we get the interpretation of the interpretation of the Scripture and so on. That's right. You squeeze these words, you get every little bit of juice out of them you can. And if you can't get enough juice, you make it up. That's called a midrash. Uh, and it's a wonderful tradition, I think, the elaboration of, of text. How uh, how does it allow then for the creative approach that you have taken, and how accepting it, of it is it? I think it demands the creative approach. I think it's a you know certainly in the Jewish tradition, uh, the idea of midrash has been around for centuries, millennia. You know, so uh, in a way, this is a bit of modern midrash, and you know, I, I, and also when you take something back and put it back, take it out of that area where it's shimmering between history and myth and try and ground it in history, then you think about what did these people know about the rest of the world? And because, you know, they are part of the trade routes that circulated around the Mediterranean, I think it's almost certain that they knew about Greek culture, Aegean culture, and there was a huge tradition there of an older man, uh, an honourable older warrior, taking a younger man, uh, what they called an aphib, a boy man, as a lover, as a part of the growing up process. And, and you would learn how to be a real man through this relationship and whether you then, you would then move on and you would have your wife and child. But this was part of uh, the way you grew up the way you learned to be a fighter and, you know, there was the famous unit uh, of lovers who went to war together and they were the most feared because they fought for the honour of their lover as well as their own. And we are listening to uh, Published or Not on 3CR and I've been talking to Geraldine Brooks. Here's the continuation of that interview. This then also leads into the role of women and probably the one character, the uh, female character that is the most established is Michal, uh, if I've pronounced that correctly, David's first wife. Now, she uh, binds David to the royal house of Saul, uh, but at, when they are initially married, she's actually competing with her own brother, Jonathan for David's affection. She's then given away by her own father. Well, yeah, she chooses David over her father when, when there's a test of loyalty, when her father Saul has become 
uh, threatened by David, his great popularity and charisma, and sees that his son is willing to hand the throne. So his line is at risk. And so Saul turns against David and Michael sides with her husband instead of her father, and she has to bear terrible consequences because of that. She's given away by Saul to another man. She's then taken back by David. Yeah, about 10 years later after she's had a life with this other guy. And that in many ways is a political move rather than a move of love. Um, And she's seen as a trophy throughout or? Definitely. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, not an uncommon story for women of that time. And I would say even today, and I did draw a lot on my experiences as a foreign correspondent before I became a novelist. I worked for about a decade in the Middle East covering modern catastrophes and particularly interested in the lives of women in societies where seemingly they had no power and few rights. But I did see how women in those kinds of predicaments where things were dangerous and precarious, but they often managed to play a bad hand really well. And the exercise of private power was something that interested me a lot. And also that notion of that female perspective not being necessarily acknowledged. Well, the Bible is a very blokey book, let's face it. (laughs) You know, we hear about women just in terms of how they affected the men. You're lucky if you get a name, if you're a woman in the Bible. I mean, Lot's wife, um, Noah's wife. She she was the salt of the earth, was Lot's wife. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just, it's, 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 it's dispiriting, you know. So what's great about David's story is there are these amazing women in it, but they're only sketched briefly in the, in the text and only in so far as how what they did affected David. I wanted to widen the viewfinder and flip the perspective so that we see him through their eyes and fantastic eyes they are. You know, we've got uh, Mikhail first and then we've got Abigail who is so bright that she saves her whole village. Uh, her husband is politically very stupid and puts everything at risk and she steps in and and, uh, saves the day and David really admires that in her so that's how they come together and then there's Bathsheba of course the you know portrayed always by male authors as a seductress but when I look at that story it doesn't look like seduction it looks like a rape to me so I think it's important that women take ownership of these stories and midrash them, retell them from a women's point of view. Well, the story of Bathsheba then, uh, which brings Nathan into conflict with David, is that rather than a seductress, uh, she's gone to wash in private and is then overseen by David. Yeah, she doesn't know he's up in the middle of the night with insomnia. You know, she's looking for a private place where she won't be Because her house is full of men because her husband has sort of helped He's a soldier and, you know, he's away at war, so she's got no one there to protect her. And then the knock comes on the door and the king wants you. Well, does she have any choice in that? I don't think so. And you get this uh, problem that Bathsheba then has after her encounter with David. She could effectively be stoned to death. Have you ever seen a woman stoned to death, Nathan? I, I have. My father made me watch when I was a girl so I would know what became of faithless wives. And when my monthly signs didn't come, I thought about that woman, the sound of her moans, her mashed flesh, her shattered bone. At the end of it, she had no face. She drew a hand across her eyes 
as if to wipe out the image. That notion of women could have been um, killed for being raped, basically. Yeah. yeah, so there she is. She's pregnant and her husband's been away at war, so there's no way that it's going to be passed off as his child. And that's where David has her very brave, very loyal husband essentially murdered. And that's the great sin, which then has rolling consequences for the rest of David's life. But there are these people that are all put into compromising situations because of David's actions. Lust, you know, and and self-indulgence, basically. Yes. And this then brings Nathan into conflict because you get that story, which is the biblical story of the rich man with the lamb and the poor man with the lamb, uh, etc. But poor Nathan is now compromised as well. And then one night I woke from a restless sleep to find the world alight with the cold radiance of the full moon. I had been in the deserts a full month. I was a hollowed-out gourd, as light as air. It was over. I'd been shown all that I needed to see. I knew what I needed to do. The painful future stretched out before me. David would have the throne, the crown, the line of the descendants that the name had promised him. But for the rest of his life he would be scolded by the consequences of his choices. My task would be twofold, to stand up to him and to stand by him, to awaken his conscience and to salve the pain this would cause him, to help him to endure through the hard days and years that lay ahead of him. So Nathan, in some ways, is compromised as well. Well, Nathan has that moment of recognition that he has given his life over in service to somebody who is prepared to wield power corruptly. And then he has to make a choice. Does he go on or does he withdraw? And that is the moment when he realizes that he has to go on, that that is his role. And this, in terms of a comprehensive picture of David, we have someone who is chosen and fated, but at the same time condemned by his own behavior in many well, ways. Well, he, he has to accept that he has abused his power and then he has to try and make amends for what he's done. And the interesting thing to me about David is that he's prepared to do that. Not many powerful men will acknowledge. We've seen it, you know, in our own recent history. You know, Clinton did everything to cover up that he did not have sex with that woman. And then, of course, you know, it, it had to be exposed and... Did he really try and make amends? I don't think so. You know, she was castigated and cast out of society and he went on to be fated as a wonderful world leader, getting a lot of money for his speeches. Well, that's not what David does. David's a little bit more uh, more of a positive role model for owning your crimes and trying to make amends for them. But ultimately he's, he's compromised because what you have in the dynasty that emerges... Um, his own children then eating each other almost in, in terms of trying to get uh, the crown. Yeah, his oldest sons are morally lost. Uh, and, you know, again, I return to my years as a foreign correspondent. As I'm reading about Amnon and Absalom, I thought, boy, these remind me of someone. They remind me of Saddam Hussein's two sons, Uday and Husay who just rampaged through Baghdad. When I was reporting there, everybody in Baghdad knew you didn't take your daughter out to a nightclub 
because if one of these guys came and liked the look of it, you know, she was gone and there's nothing you could do about it. And they would murder anybody who stood in their way in the least degree and they had no risk of any consequences because they were protected by their powerful father. And that's how David's oldest sons behave. And yet then there's the younger son, um, Solomon or Shlomo is the Hebrew name, who rises up and is the one who will succeed him. And as you know, he's gone down in memory as the byword for wisdom and good governance. I'm just wondering if there are any parallels between David and Saul. Saul went mad because of the weight of power and um, sort of the dynasty he'd created. In some ways, David is compromised in terms of trying to control the empire he created and, and as he goes into decline he can't control his children that's right and it's it's kind of the uh the lesson is you know blind love is not good parenting uh, is one of the lessons at least uh, is, is that a warning for your own children <laughs> yeah well i try and be a bit strict on some issues <laughs> <laughs> And to to sort of cap it off, we have the presence of the harp. David's music could bring that man back. I think the seeds of my love were planted there in the ground that my father's madness harrowed. We, all of us, all of us who loved my father, would have looked with affection on anyone who could do what David did. He brought joy back into our household for a brief time. When he first came to us as my father's new armour-bearer, the young hero of Wadi Ella, he had no idea what a change he would bring. That first time he went and fetched his harp, a crude handmade thing he'd crafted for himself. My father soon saw to it that the best craftsmen were commissioned to fashion a better one. Nobody paid him much mind when he plucked the first notes, but soon every head turned to him. None of us had ever heard the like. The significance of the harp? Well, you know, the book's called The Secret Chord, which comes from the wonderful Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah which actually is one of the pieces in my son's repertoire now that he's 19 and plays very well. Um, And it's a beautiful song. And the first line says, They say there was a secret chord that David knew, and it pleased the Lord. And I just love that idea of music that's so exceptional, that it even pleases the heavens. But that song is great because it also goes on. There's a later verse that you don't hear sung that much. Uh, where it says, there's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken. Hallelujah. And I love that idea of holy and broken and the duality because that to me is what David is all about. This man who's capable of creating great beauty, but he's also broken as we all are. Indeed, a very human character told exceptionally well in a book called The Secret Chord by Geraldine Brooks and it's released by Hachet Australia. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Thank you.